So a uh, true story early on in my, my church ministry, um, I developed this, this habit, hashtag nine habits, uh, I developed this habit of praying for the community um, as I was driving around. So um, I pray for uh, folks in the congregation as I'm driving by their houses. I pray for community leaders and teachers, people in uniform, workers, etc. as I'm going by workplaces in the community. Um, I, I pray lots of simple prayers like, Lord, help us reach people here in this city, that, that kind of generic thing. So here at FCC, uh, about 14 years ago, uh, pretty early on uh, in, in my time here, uh, true story, I would, I would pull out the side of the back parking lot here in the back every day here on this side, uh, and I would often see some kids playing outside at the blue duplex, light blue duplex that's right over there. Um, and, and I just I remember after being here for a little while, I just started to pray after I'd see those kids outside. Lord, help us somehow, I don't know how, but help us reach kids like that in this neighborhood. And I just... We're positioned, we're situated here for a reason, uh, for us to act like those who live around us don't matter, whether it's here or in our houses, in our neighborhoods, is, is to not understand the heart of God. So I just was praying, Lord, help us reach that duplex uh, for Christ. Well, fast forward a year or two, um, about 12 to 13 years ago. And I don't really remember the details of how this happened and, and how this kid showed up, um, but there was this loud and fiery and squirrely sixth grade kid who showed up at youth group uh, one night. Um, and guess where he lived? Uh, by the way, did I mention he was loud and fiery and squirrely? In, in my 12 years of youth ministry, he was the loudest and fieriest and squirreliest kid um, that I'd ever had. Turned out, though, that the Lord brought that kid here, not just because he was, did I mention, loud and fiery and squirrely and needed direction, still does, but because he was a young man who even in his short life, I mean, he was a sixth grader when he started coming to youth group, even in his short life, this young man had already, as we'll see in Lamentations 3.1, seen affliction. He was a young man who had already experienced a lot of pain uh, in his life. Uh, let's watch this video together. Hey, my name is Hunter Snelson, and this is God's story in my life, bringing me from pain to hope. It wasn't until maybe nine, maybe or maybe 10, I'm really not sure, but um, my mom got off the phone one day and she pulled me and my sister aside and said, there's someone who wants to meet you. Obviously, we're kids. We're like, hey, who is it? Uh, we're excited. We're like, okay, who's this person? Generally, mom brings us all the neighbors and says, hey, these are my kids and shows us off. But this time was different. I could, I could see it on her face. I could feel the difference and she looked at us and said it's your dad as a kid growing up without a father like I didn't know he wasn't supposed to be missing I didn't know up to this point I should have known him by now I remember looking at that man and thinking awesome 
this is this is my dad. This is a guy I can look up to. Like this is cool. But I couldn't I couldn't stay there forever. There came a time when I finally had to look at the world around me for the way it actually is rather than the fairy tale I painted. I couldn't live in a world where my dad walked out on me. I couldn't live in a world where he may never apologize for doing that. I can't live in a world where he cannot fix the pain and the damage he's done. And so I had to lie to myself to fix the pain. A world where I had to manipulate my situations and warp my reality. A place where I felt like I had to fend for myself and fight for my own worth in a broken home where I didn't feel loved. The hardest part of all of this is being an adult and having that flow, that rush of emotions, everything coming back to you, all that pain and understanding and knowledge of what happened, and having to look myself in the face and tell myself it's real. That all that happened and it's too late to go back to fix it I know for me where I first saw hope was at FCC I can I can tell you without a doubt the love that Tommy and Scott showed me was better and different and nothing like anything I'd ever felt or known before. It was so easy to trust God in those moments because, I mean, what do you want? Painful, broken world or the love and hope you have in eternal life with a Savior who loves you. This was not a hard decision. It was so easy to to accept his love, to accept the hope he offered me. The great thing about it is, God didn't leave me with the pain. He gave me something better. He offered hope. Hope that everything's going to be okay. Hope that the pain and brokenness won't stay that way forever. Hope that one day... I get a chance to show God's love and forgiveness to my family. So as God's story in my life goes forward, yes, things are still hard, struggles still exist, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel because we have hope in the arms and care of Jesus. Why did you have to get up and give him a hug? Um, I have a sermon to preach. I'm going to get to it in a second. 
But make no mistake, what we do here matters. Don't believe the lie that this is playtime. We're dealing with people's souls in this place. Okay. So how do we get from pain to hope? And uh, how did Hunter get there? What what was the change? What was the the difference maker in his life? And we're going to see a progression in the text starting at 3-1 that takes us from pain uh, to hope. So I want you to jump in there with me at 3-1. Lots of cool stuff uh, to tell you about in the text today. Lamentations 3. Let's start there together and pull it together. It says this, I am the man who has seen affliction. That's where we get the word pain for our title from pain to hope here. From pain to hope, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Circle that word affliction there because it's what we're talking about is the starting point will end up at hope. Um, but before we move on, I want to give you some, some background and pain. Uh, background and pain, that's good, Scott. Background and context uh, before we move on here. In three one, the man who is writing is probably Jeremiah who was called the weeping prophet. And he is called that because throughout the book of Lamentations, uh, he is weeping for the people of God because they have just seen their whole city and their whole land and their temple uh, destroyed. They are grieving the collapse of all that they held dear. You see, this destruction of the city and of the temple that was in 586 B.C. was a gargantuan blow for the people of God. And when I say big, I mean big in a way that's collapsed that none of us have ever experienced. This is a, a great city and a temple that represented God's blessing and favor on their land as a people, as a nation, on them individually. Their tie to the nation and to the land and to the city and to the temple was as fundamental to them as the very presence of God in this relationship with him. So we're talking they had incredibly strong sense, an incredibly strong sense that their personal hopes and their dreams and their futures and the futures of their sons and daughters and the entire nation depended upon keeping their relationship with God central in this city and this temple. If the city was intact and the temple was active, sacrifices were being made, then they were blessed by God. They were, they were prospering. God had their back. They had the sense that it's all going to be okay. But if, as it was in Lamentations, the city was not intact and this temple system of sacrifices and, and, and celebratory feasts, if all of that was not active, they understood that to mean not only that they should fear for their futures, but also that they were being condemned and judged by the holy God who deserved their perfect obedience. So when this happens, this total collapse of their land, it felt to them like all was lost. I mean, just imagine in your own lives, if everything you knew that was security and relationship with family was gone, if you had a Job-like kind of experience, it would feel like total collapse. That is akin to what was going on here. 
Just listen to Lamentations 1 if you want to turn there. Lamentations 1, 16 and 17. We'll go right back to 3. But this is a decent little description of Jeremiah the weeping prophet crying for his land. This is how it felt here. 1, 16 and 17. He says, For these things, meaning the destruction that was going on. Remember, this is written in the aftermath of 586, the destruction of Jerusalem. For these things I weep. That's why he's called the weeping prophet. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate. For the enemy has prevailed. He says, verse 17, Zion, meaning the people of God, meaning Israel. Zion stretches out, stretches out her hands, begging for help, in other words. But there is none to comfort her. And so, so here in Lamentations, Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of the people personifying the whole nation's experience and the response to this total collapse. And if you don't get the picture yet, a little more color on uh, the extent of the devastation that they were experiencing. Um, The Babylonians, who were uh, becoming a, a major world power at the time, had slowly been taking over Israelite cities and territories uh, all over the land, one by one, for years preceding this final take of Jerusalem. So when the Babylonian invaders finally came to Jerusalem, they laid siege to Jerusalem for about an entire year and a half, meaning they surrounded the city and cut off all of the supplies slowly draining Jerusalem of all of its lifelines, which is to say like siege warfare, which is a well-known military tactic, involves cutting off the supplies while often also attacking with the military weaponry the, the entire time. So this was a slow and devastating way to take over a city. So inside the walls of Jerusalem, it had become a pretty ugly scene which is why the poetry in Lamentations is pretty graphic. The poetry in Lamentations is graphic because what had gone inside was pretty ugly. The Babylonians had slowly been draining Jerusalem of its lifelines physically, emotionally, and spiritually. They were dying a slow and painful, hope-draining death. (laughs) Which is why Jeremiah writes about Uh, God's judgment of his own people here. Using a lot of siege-like imagery in the poetry here. Look at 3.1 and following here. We'll move a little bit faster here through the text. Starting back at 3.1. Notice the siege-like imagery here. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Listen to this. He has besieged and enveloped me. Notice he's equating the Babylonian invasion with the judgment of God here. Jeremiah on behalf of the people. He has surrounded me, verse 5, with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, trapped like a prisoner who can't go anywhere. Though I call... And I cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. Jump down to verse 12. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. 
He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. We are surrounded. We are prisoners. There is no escape. God is not listening, and he has turned his back on us. This is a picture of total collapse in Jerusalem. The people were cut off. They were starving. We know from some historical accounts that there was some cannibalism within the same family. There were so many dead bodies that they just left them in the streets to rot without any burial. And then finally, at the end of the siege, they set the whole city on fire and just lay in ruins. And those who were left were taken away from their homeland, from their security, from everything they'd known, from their sense of, if this is all intact, it's going to be all good. (laughs) Taken away, exiled. No city, no temple, no land, no home, no future. Friends, Lamentations is a picture of total collapse many of us have never even touched on experiencing. Which is to say a couple things. Number one, sin really matters to a holy God. We talked about that for the first uh, couple weeks. You can listen online about that if you'd like to. But it means something else that we're going to talk about here. It means this is a place you have to get before you move on. You ever get there? That feeling of total collapse? (laughs) A time when you begin to feel like nothing is working right. My security is gone. I am trapped in this prison from which I cannot escape. I have no resources, no hope for the future, other than what I know now as the, the pain and the hope that is not there that I'm currently experiencing. Because, because friends, total collapse isn't just a description, a description of the rubble of a formerly great building. It's a feeling about one's life. This is a feeling Jeremiah expresses well in 3.17 and 18. Jump down there if you would please with me. He says this in 17 and 18. My soul is bereft. It's a fancy word that means absent or devoid. My soul is absent of peace. He says, listen to this. I have forgotten what happiness is. I mean, I know it's out there. Happiness is there. But it's such a foreign out there concept that I don't even know what it would look like to Experience it. So I say, this is the the bottom of the barrel here, here in verse 18. My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. I can't keep going. I have no hope. You ever been there? I can't keep going. I have no hope. I'm done. I'm over it. I can't even. You ever been there? Some of you are like, was there seven times yesterday? Of course you have. We've all been there. We've all been to that place where for the thousandth time, the boss is inflexible and the work is not worth the return. Where, Where the responsibility that's on you is beyond you. Where they're asking too much of you, the cost is too great, the price too much for you to have to pay. Where, where, where for the thousandth time, she won't let it go, he won't understand, and the kids don't listen. By the way, that's most families and marriages at some point. We all get there. Maybe it's something 
that is not a relational human thing. Maybe it's a, a thing that is an idol for you. Maybe for the thousandth time, the food is screaming for you, the drugs are calling to you, the, the bottle somehow knows your name. When you get to that place of, I can't keep going, I have no hope, ironically, it's then, and it's only then, that real hope can actually be understood. And I know that sounds a little weird, <laughs> A little not intuitive at this point. Uh, in other words, you mean hope comes when I have no hope? Hope comes when I've lost hope? Yes, in a way. Let me say it very simply. It's a shift from hoping in you or someone else or something else to God alone. That's the shift in the text we'll see in just a minute here. It put in very simple, easy to understand terms. The shift is an understanding that the hope is not in you or someone else or something else or the structures in your life that the world says is going to give you hope or security or a future. It's making the shift from that to the place where you can say, or we'll get at the end here, the Lord alone is my portion. My hope is in God alone. And it's sort of counterintuitive because it's a place you have to get to where you understand you don't have hope in order for you to understand where real hope is. In recovery, we call it rock bottom. If you know anything about recovery, you know that unless you really hit rock bottom and you begin to understand that you cannot fix this situation or yourself, that's when you begin to need help and understand that unless you hit rock bottom where you know that your help must come from outside of you, you cannot know hope. Otherwise, hope is a, in a thing or a relationship that is fleeting, that won't last, that won't help. In, in Lamentations, as the people of God looked over the devastation of their land, they realized that the Lord must be their portion alone. Let me show you what I mean. Look down at verse 21. This is where the turn happens from a shift from hope in the worldly things, in myself, in relationships, in things and idols to God. And note before we jump in that this is the very center of all of Lamentations. You can look up uh, the number of Hebrew words that are used on either side and how the poetry fits together. The very center of the book makes a turn here at verse 21 where it says, But this, but this I call to mind. In Scripture, the word but signals a turn toward God. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Notice that he's calling it to mind. He's remembering it. This is a practice and discipline of those who understand that the hope cannot be in this worldly stuff, but in God who alone is my portion. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And what is this thing? It is this, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. What we must remember is that the steadfast love of the Lord never stops. Verse 22 here, uh, steadfast love, uses a, a majorly important word in the Scriptures. 
Steadfast love, if you're a note taker, write this down. Steadfast love describes God's never-ending, unconditional love. And it emerges from His perfections and holiness, and it's based on His promises. Steadfast love describes God's never-ending, unconditional love that emerges from His perfection and it is based on His promise to love His children. I mean, we could just simmer on this truth for a good long while. God's unconditional love never ends. This is part of the turn from pain to hope. Part of the turn from hope in things that don't last to hope in the only thing that does last. Verse 22, let's keep moving. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Another way to say it, His mercies never come to an end. They are, this is a great phrase, new every morning. Which is to say, every single morning, the rising of the sun is an indication of God's never-ending, unconditional love that comes from His perfections and that is based on His promises. When the sun rises, we should think in the morning, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Which is to say, the very rising of the sun is a reminder of His endless mercy for those who hope in Him. Which is a truth that deserves praise. Look at the next phrase there. Great is your faithfulness. It's God's never-ending unconditional love that comes from His faithfulness, His promises. That's what gives hope. And here's how you know, we're going to end here in verse 24. Here's how you know that you are turning toward hope that really lasts. It says this, verse 24. This is a great phrase. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. In other words, when every part of your being when everything about you understands the only thing that you've got on your plate that feeds you and you depend on is the Lord's love. When He alone is on your plate and He's the only one on whom you are feeding for your future and your hope, the Lord has become your portion. That's when you begin to understand hope that comes from a God who never ceases, who always has mercy, who gives love to us from His perfections and not our goodness. This is magnificent truth. The Lord is my portion. What God is doing in the kingdom is He is bringing up people after His heart who walk out these doors and say, on Him only do I depend. On Him alone do I have hope. When you have finally learned to give up on your own ineffective, human-centered methods of achieving satisfaction or success, then you are learning to trust in His goodness and His promises. Then and only then can you begin to make the turn from pain to hope that lasts.
Friends, that's an amazing truth. The steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases, that becomes our portion to feed us for life. That's an amazing truth that demands a response from us. And so we're going to have the band come up here and we're going to begin to uh, sing a song together uh, that talks about how Christ alone (laughs) is our portion. On Him alone do we stand. And so this is a time we call invitation uh, because we want to have a response to this amazing truth. Wherever we are in our journeys with the Lord, if you're a believer and you've known God for a long time, then we trust that the Spirit is even now in this moment saying, this is this place where I am not yet your full portion. You've got to make me your portion. (laughs) We trust that you're giving yourself to Him in that. And we look forward to the fruit that is born in your life. Maybe you're on the sort of other side of that continuum. Maybe you're not sure what a relationship with God looks like. What in the world is he talking about with this? Lord is my portion. Why do I need that? But you know that the Lord is speaking to your heart and asking you to respond. We'd love to have a conversation with you. We'd love to pray with you. Answer questions if you have any. This is a a place of safety to, to carry on conversations like that. Maybe, maybe you've been looking for a church home and you're a baptized believer in Jesus. And uh, you're looking for a place where you can grow and become who God made you to be, where you can continue to practice the kinds of things we call the nine habits that give us uh, hope in a forever Savior. Um, to become a member here at First Christian is just to stand here uh, with me in front of a new church family and say out loud as a believer, um, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to to proclaim that He is your Lord and Savior. Uh, And then finally, maybe today is a time where um, it's time for you publicly to stand and to say, listen, I want to give my life to Jesus because He gave His life for me. Uh, My hope is rooted in His death on the cross for me. So for whatever place you're in, we'd like to invite you forward uh, as we stand and as we sing together.